Why are you wearing the glasses from the old guy in Up? <laughs> seen that film. Don't get the reference. <laughs> What's wrong with my glasses? They're too big. You look like a young proclaimer. Uh, and I would walk 500 miles, no, no. Chinch. You wouldn't, like, though, would you? Which one of the two Ronnies does he most look like? From the, You know, when they do the new sketch. sketch. Ronnie Barker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Um, I'm wearing glasses oh, because I got back from the Etihad at 9.30pm and Kate decided that she wanted to watch episode two of The Trump Show in bed. Uh, not for... Because she finds it erotic. <laughs> <A> foreplay. <laughs> because she was tired. Um... I hasten to add. And at 10 p.m., Ed wandered in, clutching his teddies, because he hadn't seen his daddy all day, so he wanted to... Wanted, he See wanted, Joe Biden? I must have, have, I, have I told you the story about Ed and the football match? No, but to like save it, because that sounds like a children's, children's book. book. Very good. <laughs> right, children's so we, books. Um, during lockdown, when we were staying at Kate's parents, lockdown one, me and my father-in-law were watching a football match, and Ed wandered in, and we said to him, we, we want the team in red, who shall name, remain nameless. We want the team in red to win. And they were playing a team in blue. And Ed looked at the screen, thought about it, turned around to look at us and went, me blue, because uh, he's <laughs> contrary. Uh, anyway, we, we've obviously had CNN on for about a week. And we've tried to explain to him what's going on. And we said that there's an election between a man called Joe and a man called Donald. And obviously, I'm a journalist in the New York Times, so I don't have opinions. But, um, but Kate said that she wanted Joe to win. It was better for everybody if Joe won. And Ed looked, turned, her, turned to her, looked at her and went, me, Donald. <laughs> <laughs> this is so going to cause a lot of problems in later life. He's now a Republican. Is he now viciously campaigning for a recount? He is. He just doesn't. He's he's really upset about Pennsylvania. He is it, is, it, is he as it. confused about uh, the Donald's uh, legal strategy as the Donald's legal team? Uh, I have to be very careful about this. Does this could could yet be used? I'm merely asking for your son's opinion. I have no interest in yours. He is. Um, he just thinks that you know every every vote should be counted. That's what he thinks. He's just. Is he on, is he on a plane to Georgia vote? as we speak? Is <laughs> every, it, is every, <laughs> every legal vote or every illegal vote? Just drilling down, really drilling down into the... To the... I don't, I, he doesn't, he fundamentally rejects the idea that there's a difference. He thinks that most, that, that in all but one or two kind of administrative, administrative mistakes, he thinks that most of the ballots cast will be legal. He's a... Right, right, okay. that's, know, he's, that's democracy. That's defense, democracy. Really. He doesn't, he also is a big fan. He's also a terrible loser, actually, as we said. So um, you, should, you should take him to your local garden centre slash landscaper and see if he starts looking for Uncle Rudy. The, um, I tell you what, Stephen Smith's garden centre in Otley is a higher calibre of garden centre than Four Seasons Total Landscaping, let me tell you. And there is not a dildo shop within, <laughs> within a mile of Stephen Smith's in Otley. It's, uh, it also does an excellent selection of fireworks, I can, I can confirm. This is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk politics and also sometimes football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, Wisconsin, Rory Smith, Michigan and Andy Hinchcliffe. Pennsylvania. Yes! Food is, actually, funny enough, you're not Pennsylvania because you're always early. Uh, yeah. The food is uh, being eaten by all three, but Chinch, it is uh, your responsibility to tell us about the food today because there is a reason why you are stuffing your face. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily keen to tell you about this, but both you and Steve seemed very, very keen on me to, to tell the story of not just what I'm eating crumpets with melted cheese on, which <sighs> are delightful with, with homemade coffee, but I've got to eat before a certain time because... This afternoon, my bowels are going to be 
evacuated. There's no easy way of saying it. I'm a man of a certain age that needs certain procedures doing. So you have to have a clean tract. And I have to drink two liters of the most appalling liquid known to man. They said, use a straw, it'll help. It doesn't, it's horrible. And then basically I'm gonna spend the next six hours sitting on the lavatory uh, playing Tetris. Is that use a straw for drinking? Or for, for, oh, God, drinking, yes. Oh, yes. No, 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 drinking. Drinking, yes. That's the yes, intake, yes. not the evacuation. And the football, uh, to change the subject as soon as it's humanly possible, is Chinch, do you know what we're talking about today? Are we, are we off shooting from the last thing we talked about? I can't remember what the last thing was we talked about, and I, I clearly don't know what we're talking about today. Well, you kind of do, because we were planning to talk about it last week, but didn't even actually get past the setup. After attempting to frame the terms of our conversation about footballers in the mainstream, we ended up just talking about the relationship that sport as a whole has with the mainstream. So this week, we'll have a clear run. Chinch, does that sound nice? A clear run. Oh. A clear run at the original topic, and I won't need to have a rant, that's for sure. Uh, that is all to come. You can get in touch with the podcast set Peacemenu at gmail.com is our email address. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and of course, our YouTube channel. This email comes from Simon Anderson, who immediately endears himself to Rory, because he's from Harrogate, and immediately endears himself to Steve by entitling his message, VAR again, Steve's thoughts on Bamford. Hello, everyone. Really enjoying the podcast recently. After a while since I was last read out on the podcast, I felt I needed to email again following the discussion, he says, about VAR that Steve had with everyone two episodes ago. I write this email having just seen the image of the VAR decision used to rule Patrick Bamford's goal out on Saturday. I understand that a player is either onside or offside, but when the point used to determine whether a player is offside is the top of his arm, which whilst I think is technically legal to score with, would never be used to score with, it seems like it has finally gone a step too far. I would be interested to know Steve's thoughts on this. Meanwhile, one suggestion for improvement I thought up in perhaps a slightly mad moment was that instead of having referees operating the VAR, it should be whichever pundit isn't working on final score, match of the day, soccer Saturday, or that one that Rory features in. In the pre-VAR days during coverage of games, the obvious mistakes would be caught in less time than the average VAR offside, and the replays would be shown almost immediately. However, both that Bamford goal and the Mane goal for the Merseyside derby would never in a million months of Sundays have been flagged as dubious and contentious. So my proposal is that IFAB amend every law to allow for the Neville Keane, Shearer, Sutton, Smith determination. Keep up the excellent work. That's Simon and Harrogate. First point um, to discuss, Chinch, is the idea that you would be in charge of the VAR decision-making. Are you happy with that? My name, why, why wasn't my name mentioned in that, in that stream of luminaries? Because you would always be working. This, these are the people oh, that's true. Yeah, those, those guys just yeah, pop in and out, don't they? I, I have, yeah, it shouldn't be the final decision, but maybe, but I, the thing is, if you've got the laws of the game, what a player says is going through another player's mind is kind of immaterial, isn't it? The law is the law, which is down to the referee. A player can say, well, I actually think he's gone to do him there. That's a technical term. But it's not really the referee's... Well, I, I can't take that as... That, that's not part of the law, is it? So it's a bit tricky. But you could get some guidance from former players if you, you could advise. But clearly the referees know the laws. And, and that thing about the top of the... It doesn't matter whether you, how often you score with that part of the body. You can score with that part of the body. So if it's in an offside position, you're offside. One of the points that Simon makes in his email that I had to get rid of for time reasons, which I'm now going to undermine by adding it back in, is that he talked about the pre-Premier League VAR days, the halcyon days of when it was used at the World Cup and in other leagues prior to the Premier League introduction. And he said that that was much better. I do refer all of you back to the complete omni-shambles of the World Cup where new nobody knew any of the rules and nobody knew any of the, uh, uh, the regulations about how and when VAR would be used. Stephen, on Bamford, 
I sympathise. I don't quite buy into this. It's gone too far because you know they've got to. They've got to have an. The offside distinction has got to be made somewhere. So you can't say that that's that's too far. But it does seem absurd that by you know pointing towards where you want the the ball to be passed, you can be offside. But in the same way with the Mane one that we discussed a couple of weeks ago, and we didn't get onto to this aspect of it then. I don't really understand why strikers aren't adapting to this. It's happening every week, yet forwards are still getting caught frustratingly, marginally offside. And in situations where there is no need for them to be marginally offside, I think both Mane and Bamford could have probably been a foot further back in make, making their run and still have had the same space from which to score. So... Whilst I understand the frustration with the, the rule, I don't really understand why we're not looking at footballers and questioning their unwillingness to adapt because they have in the past to rule changes or to, to, high, to, to situations where the rules have become highlighted. Defenders stopped passing the ball back to the goalkeeper when they realised that they were going to get penalised for doing it. So why are strikers not being a little bit more astute about making sure that they're onside? Next to Pete Jones. Hi, guys. Couldn't be asked with nonsense puns on your name slash nicknames or anything. I have two things in mind as I write today. First is a statement about VAR, specifically the offside debate. As a Liverpool fan, I was a Molotov cocktail of cuss-laden rage when Mane's goal was disallowed in the Merseyside derby. Once calm again, I am resigned to the fact that we cannot change it. You have to allow it to be as pedantic as necessary. A wrestling analogy for Rory. Once you have broken kayfabe, there's no going back. Now that we've seen VAR in operation, it is impossible to go back to how it used to be. Rory, can you do the kayfabe for all the uninitiated? Uh, kayfabe in wrestling is the is effectively the fourth wall. It's you, you keep, to keep kayfabe is to keep your character. It's to break kayfabe, kayfabe is to give some window into the fact that it, it is all staged and manipulated. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, secondly, a more serious offering, says Pete. My daughter plays for Liverpool Girls. She is awesome and I am proud beyond words. I've never felt that the girls are worse off in comparison to the boys. Excellent facilities, fantastic coaching and coach to play in the right way. Now I see with the second lockdown upon us in England that their male counterparts are classed as elite whereas the girls in regional talent centres or any female player under the age of 18 playing for a proper club, he says, in inverted commas, is not. In 2020, how can this be? There seems to be something I might have encountered in 70s Britain, not now. Pete, in Liverpool. It's ridiculous. Uh, to be honest, the whole situation with sport is ridiculous. Sport, with grassroots sport as a whole, there is, there is, there was a kid from, I think, a team in Ballam who was on Sky Sports News the other day pointing out that they were allowed to sit in school with... X or the number of kids and get on the bus with X or the number of kids, but they're not allowed to run around with 23 on a football pitch. Yeah, it's the same. My, my two boys both play football with the kids they go to school with. They can go to school with them, but they can't play football or rugby with them at the weekend. It, it's well, I mean, they shouldn't so, be playing rugby. That's probably, that's probably one of the few benefits of lockdown. It's a, it's a different debate. Look, it, gets, it burns <laughs> off a bit of energy. I'm willing, to, I'm willing to indulge it for the time being. But the, yeah, the sport thing is, is ridiculous as a whole. And the... the, the delineation that has been drawn between boys and girls sport is one of those things that probably makes sense on a sort of paper level you can you can probably understand the, the kind of the technical elements of the decision that have created that decision but on a on a moral and a common sense level makes no sense at all and is abominable they should probably be more upfront and rather than talking about elite or such like just say look it's down to whether or not 
these clubs or institutions have the money and the willingness to use that money to test regularly. Yeah. And clearly, in some circumstances, they do. And in some circumstances, they don't. Uh, we have had a lot of excellent emails about last week's conversation about sport in the mainstream. Some of that excellence comes from the fact that they contribute rather nicely to our follow-up today. So uh, to them in a moment. Of the rest, here are just a couple. Cameron Hill in Dublin continues to provide us with more content than we can actually handle. But uh, here's one of his most recent contributions. Dear Gary, Howard, Mark and Jason. Would you like me to uh, divvy those yes. up in a, yes, in a way that makes sense? Well, firstly, Gary's obviously me because I write everything. Yeah. Um, who's responsible for the backing vocals? Because that's, that's Howard. Um, Mark is the, uh, the one that all the girls fancy. And Jason is the good dancer. Well, that's incorrect, though. I think you'll find that Jason was very much a slow burn set symbol. And I think yeah. if you go back to a lot of yeah. Take That fans who have now grown older, as people do, they would probably say that whilst Mark was cute as a teenager, uh, Jason is the one who's, who's really blossomed. Uh, so I think that has to be changed. <laughs> <That's>... Thank you. <laughs> I'll take that. That was completely contrived to get to that end point, wasn't it? Um, J Jason Orange has played a huge part in me being with my now wife. So to Jason, I say thank you once again. Firstly, says Cameron, I offer the customary praise for the pod, which is keeping up the usual high standards as of late. In particular, he says, I was delighted to hear Rory's news from a couple of weeks ago about his brother's memorials. I have a long held belief, says Cameron, that the worlds of sport and art are analogous. In both cases, there is a binary of those who are obsessed with it and those who actively despise it. And there are issues of credibility regarding who has the right to make criticism or posit theories. For example, you can hardly talk. You know nothing about poetry slash football. Or I don't care what anyone says. Messi slash Twain is the goat. That's not even mentioning my theory that book clubs are the five-a-side football teams of the arts world. The quality is always rather dreadful. There's always one person who takes it far too seriously. And in the end, it should be a bit of a laugh. However, in the case of the mainstream, I believe there is a link between the current lot of sports and the situation the arts faced in the early 20th century. He says in brackets, I'm about to annoy Rory by talking about literature outside of the classics. Art was at a crossroads in the 1910s, faced with having to pander further to the whims of the public in order to make money. Instead, poets like Pound, Williams and Eliot didn't fill their work with similes and rhymes and wrote poetry to stimulate other poets. Painters like Picasso produced works to intrigue other painters. Simply put, it was art aimed at artists. Is that why you don't get many great limericks written after 1900? <laughs> <laughs> In order to protect the integrity of sport, continues Cameron, should sports and sports media simply become more introspective? Should New York Times columnists, for example, think, well, what would I like to read about when coming up with new article ideas? Should pundits, for example, think, what tactics do I find fascinating when preparing their post-match thoughts? Can sport afford to ditch their attempt to appeal to the mainstream in favour of doing stuff that interests them? I'm keen to hear your thoughts, and don't worry, I'll be back to sending in simple, irreverent, but enjoyable contributions in the next few weeks. Regards, Cameron Hill. And just quickly from John Lee. Good morning, John, Paul, George, and Ringo. You know who's who. Just listen to SPM 203 on my daily stroll and enjoyed it as always a particular highlight was Ringo's salmon line in the intro was this my brilliant brilliant incisive comment about the footballing salmon moving into the mainstream was that it it was indeed which rather undermines the fact that you're Ringo but I've, al <laughs> I've also often wondered says John why sport is relegated to a footnote by the mainstream as your show discussed and covered in great depth but I did feel that you missed, missed a vital point 
Is it just not in the interest of BBC or ITV to even mention any sport that they don't have the rights to show? Any content that could be seen to encourage the enjoyment of sport would serve as one long advertisement for a competitor. I'm sure the terrestrial channels would prefer not to give a single minute of airtime to any sport at all if they could avoid it. Put simply, strictly doesn't get mentioned on ITV. I'm a celebrity, doesn't get covered on the BBC. It just doesn't make sense to advertise the wares of your competition. Cheers for making my daily quest to hit 10,000 steps a little easier. Uh, that's from John Lee. I would add just briefly that I'm a Celeb does get mentioned on non-televisual media. Mm. You see, it gets covered on, uh, on Radio 2 Breakfast Show. For example. Also, I think it's, th- it's theoretically possible that I'm a Celebrity might be covered on like, the BBC News. That, that, is, that is not impossible to think that that might happen. But yeah, there, he's brought and there, right. are of, there are often people from rival channels who do yeah. the opposite shows, don't they? So if, if they're doing well, that will get mentioned. If someone from GMTV, that's not called GMT, hasn't been called GMT for three decades. If somebody from Good Morning Britain is on Strictly and is, is doing mm. brilliantly, then Piers Morgan's talking about it. Yeah, and equally, you will get kind of someone from, I'm, you know, if... Les Dennis goes on I'm a Celebrity, then he'll be on the one show. Do you know what I mean? After, after you get, because he's suddenly interesting. So I think there, there's probably more cross-pollination than you think. I think the answer to that really would be that they should cover sport as part of the public service remit. If people are interested in it, then, then they should cover it. I, um, it's intriguing about the arts thing, whether, whether sport maybe needs to be, sport can generate interest by, by talking to itself more. I would say from the point of view, New York Times football economists that literally my, my entire process, such as it is, is what do I want to write about? There is no, I like it when people read stuff, but if, if they don't, I, I kind of assume they're just wrong. But that's your process leading up to your decision making that, that doesn't necessarily affect the way that you write it. Which does it. consider the audience. Yeah, you, 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 well, you, want, you want people to be engaged once they've had the good taste and good sense to be there. But the, the actual story selection is very much Rory first. And finally then, to one or two which will do well to heed as we have our conversation today, Adam Bremner writes, without mention of his Long Island paradise of hot tub and dogs. Uh, Rory, do you, do you like the Zugma that I'm, that I'm putting yes, in Yes, although it's a weird image. I'm trying my best. Adam does start with a very nice intro, so thank you, Adam. Uh, I'm not going to read it out, it's too nice. Following that, he says... The one insight I had, at least I think it is insightful, re-sports in the mainstream, is that a lot of what you observed could be related to the value that society, community, economy, places on sports in general and specific sports too. The extent to which it's viewed as a lower class, frivolous pastime will drive the need to celebrate sports people beyond their on-field accomplishments. And this need will be triggered by more presentable i.e. white, non-ghettoized individuals, as Rory mentioned last week, in sports that are linked to the national well-being. Olympics, Tour de France, Ryder Cup. Uh, hence the desire to have sports personality of the year versus just sports person of the year. Just be grateful, Adam, that you mentioned it on the second episode so that I don't have time to have another rant about the sports personality of the year. In the US, continues Adam, the likes of Tiger Woods, LeBron James, the Williams sisters, Tom Brady, etc., are celebrated for being world-class sports people first and foremost. No celebratory TV exposure uh, needed. Although I would add at this point um, that that doesn't mean it hasn't happened. Uh, Tiger, infidelity, LeBron, political activism, Brady, celebrity wife. Sport is respected and loved, continues Adam. Everyone seems to get it in the United States. Sunday night football on NBC is primetime and always runs late, playing havoc with everyone's DVR scheduling, but no one complains. Can't wait to hear SPM 204 and the views of soccer in the mainstream. One question for that piece. 
How important is it for the soccer player to sound mainstream and be presentable, code for good-looking and suitable in the eyes of middle-class viewers of BBC One? An excellent question from Adam. We will come to that shortly. But first, and finally, here is Shane Thomas. Greetings, gents. I had a lot of thoughts on your Sport of the Mainstream episode, which I feel is one of your best. Rory observed how race functions in athletes becoming mainstream figures and how it can be more difficult to do so if you're not white. To piggyback Rory's points about making blackness acceptable to a white audience, it speaks to the awkward position that black people sometimes find themselves in in Britain. Because of stereotypes around what black people are like, the only way that they, or from my personal perspective, we can attain wide public adoration is to not be seen to display those stereotypical characteristics. As brought up on the pod, Chris Eubank and Frank Bruno were seen as almost clownish figures. So despite them being boxers, this diluted any sense of danger around them where someone like Nigel Benn was less famous and whose persona was centred around him being dangerous. Then take Mo Farah or Jessica Ennis-Hill. Farah was seen as almost childlike, you'll remember the Mobot, while Rory's former colleague at the London Times, Simon Barnes, suggested the reason that Ennis-Hill was so loved was because she represented what we want Britain to be. As much as I don't want to disagree with a great man, what I think Barnes missed was that Ennis-Hill was and is perceived as being demure, polite and unassuming. Also, the fact that she is light-skinned hasn't harmed her, says Shane. Basically, the black athletes loved across the country are the ones who don't come off as too black. This isn't to disparage any of these athletes. They are all deserving of plenty of praise. All won world titles, and Ennis Hill and Farah were and are Olympic champions. But when we consider how Raheem Sterling, Linford Christie, or Lewis Hamilton are assumed to be, their awkward relationship with the British public stems from them being depicted as a bit arrogant or insolent or ungrateful. Think back to what Craig Ramage said in February about the young black lads at Derby needing pulling down a peg or two. This is obviously a wider societal problem, and I will just interject here as one that we've had a conversation about, about how some players are described and talked about. But sport, says Shane, is often a better space to understand how society functions than any news report. As far as black people go, there is still unspoken restrictions on who and what we can be. We're allowed to live here, but we'll rarely be seen as, to quote the football chant, one of our own. P.S. He says to finish, all credit to Chinch for having the courage to speak about his past mental health struggles near the end of the pod. Paradoxically, I've long thought that it takes huge strength to display such frailty like that. So nothing but praise for Chinch and anyone else who does the same. Best from Shane Thomas. All correspondents, please, to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. That's a brilliant email. That's a really, really good email. I don't, yeah, there's not a vast amount to add. I think that the, the point about, about lightness and darkness of skin is really important in terms of who, who is almost sort of unconsciously selected for approval. I think the key word in it is, is ungrateful, that you often see black athletes who don't fit a kind of the acceptable stereotype, who are too black, who are too openly black, um, being described as ungrateful or chippy or kind of, for a long time it was like that, the stereotype was like blingy, and you saw that a bit with, with the coverage between that Raheem talked about in terms of the coverage between black players buying houses and, and white players buying houses. Um, it, you know, it was always cast through that blingy light. And I think, I think that is a process that, that is starting to change a little bit. I think some of those, those questions are being asked within the media in how these stories are presented. Um, but I think that, the, that that is definitely something that's, that still, still holds, that yeah, Lewis Hamilton is perceived as being ungrateful. And the subtext to that is that what that he should be grateful to be in britain that he's not he's not properly british that he's in some way a guest and i think that lingers that really lingers in how in how black athletes are any athletes of color are, are kind of presented and perceived is the sense that that they should be not i mean jess Hill, jess jess ennis is 
is lovely. I, I interviewed her once and, and didn't really have anything to ask her. I was just sent um, because no one else was available. I was like, I don't really know why I'm here. It's a Sky thing. But she's really, Jess, Jess, Jess Ennis is really, really nice. But I would say that she's probably more, she is more demure and more kind of polite. And I mean, she, there's an element with, with Jess Ennis of kind of media trained to the point of bland. But I wonder how much of that is because she knows that to, to obtain that mainstream acceptance, she has to be even more demure than we expect athletes to be and and women athletes in particular i think i think a lot of the, the same stuff applies to, to female athletes as, as much as it does to to athletes of color that we expect them to fill a certain role and to be a certain type of person and if they're not we tend to to react negatively to that and that's part of um the conversation that i think we're about to have as well no i wonder whether shane has struck on something that's worthy of further debate and, and consideration is that do we have a something happening in this country where black athletes are treated with greater inclusion within their sport, but have more barriers in their way to break into the mainstream. Is sport more inclusive than society at large? Well, I suppose you could, in terms of that, you, if you look at the general conversation that we, that we have quite, quite frequently within football about, about the, the, the number of black players there are compared to the number of black managers or black executives. And I guess that the, the kind of exposure to the mainstream, the acceptance in in mainstream culture is, is, is probably another step on that same journey, isn't it? That if, you, if you're a black player and you, you can't find the acceptance within the sport to take on a senior like leadership role, it's probably going to be harder for you, if not impossible for you to kind of break into the mainstream culture. Because I think our mainstream culture is still very, still de defined and decided by white people. What, what is considered kind of part of culture is, is they are the gate, white people are still the gatekeepers. And they kind of accept black culture when it's kind of watered down a little bit or to an extent and I'm, I'm not enough i'm not sufficiently with it to fully understand like the grime phenomenon but i wonder how much of that is to do with either playing with with black identity white people playing with black identity white people kind of using black identity to um to signal their own open-mindedness but also it's ghettoized it's it's kind of that's grime that is that part of that that grime or drill or whatever that is part of that culture that is in a box and we don't want those people to, to step outside of it. Yeah. And, and can I just clarify when I say is, is sport more inclusive? I mean, as in the partake, the participation yeah, yeah. within, within sport, because as Rory has, has picked up upon, that doesn't necessarily then extend to the, the peripheries mm. of sport, the, the, the management, the, the executive level of sport, which is, is equally as important. Uh, now, it is time then to resurrect my incredibly well thought through and painstakingly put together intro from last week because, damn it, the three of you repeat each other enough, so why not me? Let's talk about football's relationship with the mainstream, cut and paste. Firstly, how best to describe the mainstream? Um, do you know what? Just go back to SPM 203. You can get it all there. Today's question, which, funnily enough, was also last week's original question, is what happens when a footballer moves from the back pages of a newspaper to the front, from Sky Sports to the One Show, from the matches to the mainstream? The examples I mentioned last week are just a starting point, really, but they do spring easily to mind, all the way from George Best in the 1960s through Paul Gascoigne and David Beckham to the modern cases of Raheem Sterling and now Marcus Rashford. This episode, honestly, it will. It will attempt to quantify what changes for that player, how they are being newly perceived, how much of that is based on class and race, and whether being in the mainstream can actually tell us more about fame itself than the footballer individually. One of the things we spoke about last week was the fact that a sport or sports person breaks outside of their bubble into the mainstream for one or more of the following reasons. 
They do something in a mainstream event or one of significance to the mainstream, and they do something notably good or bad outside of their sport. So perhaps start with the most contemporaneous example, an example of the second reason just stated more than the first, and indeed the one that prompted this whole conversation in the first place. That is Marcus Rashford. The Manchester United forward, as most will know, has been doing what has almost universally been considered incredible work, raising awareness and funds for those families whose ability to feed their children became even harder uh, because of the coronavirus pandemic. He has now forced two U-turns from the UK government as he sought to provide free meals for so many young people. His advocacy for them has been relentless and has would appear so because of those two U-turns, absolutely necessary. Now that his efforts have propelled him into the mainstream, each and every word he speaks has gained an extra significance. I have therefore two questions to get us going. Has Marcus Rashford to some extent bucked the trend that Shane mentioned in his email about black athletes? And how will that new status that Rashford now has affect how that same mainstream sees his contributions on the football field from now on? So Rory, you did actually mention that there was a, there was a sense that there is an understanding from either the mainstream media or mainstream culture that is starting to realize the mistakes of the past and they are not necessarily quite just strawberries and cream. They are a little bit more diverse than that. Is Marcus Rashford going through something that has benefited from that little bit of navel gazing that the country and society needed? Possibly, but I think Rashford's more likely to be an agent of change than a, than a consequence of it. I think that what's been striking actually through a lot of his activism since, since like March is that his colour doesn't appear to be relevant as and, and it shouldn't be that you know there's, there's no it doesn't really matter that he's a in one sense for the work that he's doing it doesn't matter that he he's black or white he's just he's just doing something to help disadvantaged disadvantaged children of all you know races and creeds um but within that and I, this is a quite complicated this is probably too complex an idea from for my brain to hold but within that the fact that his color is not relevant to his activism is itself a step forward because it adds to the impression, to the direct impression, that your colour does not define who you are or what you do and that, you know, black or white doesn't matter in terms of the value of you as a person. But equally, it kind of further breaks that bond where we sort of, yeah, depict black athletes as ungrateful or blingy or whatever it is, the stereotypes, the old stereotypes that I think have held black athletes back for a long time. Seeing what Rashid's done, even though the fact that he's black isn't being directly mentioned as part of the, the activism, the fact that it is a black player doing it is significant in terms of it creates an impression of, of black footballers, both of those words, that is contrary to what the mainstream perceives. And I think that's crucial. That's probably where his power in terms of shifting the culture is, um, because what he's done is, doesn't, what he's done doesn't see colour, but the fact that it's a black player doing it will have a consequence, if that makes any sense at all. It might not. Uh, it does. And so, so on to the, to the second question, which is g genuinely the, 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 the reason why I wanted to have a conversation about this in the first place, is that Marcus Rashford is now, uh, to, to coin the phrase that we used last week, a mainstream darling, in that he has overwhelming positive notices at the moment. Now he is to be considered, perhaps differently, by that mainstream in what he does on the football field. It just so happened that he scored a hat-trick against Leipzig from the bench just a few days after he was again trending on social media for again taking down or at least appearing to take down uh, those views of those uh, some Tory MPs who were uh, not as supportive of, of his position as others. So given that he scored that hat-trick, how do we think 
the coverage of that hat trick changed because he is now considered within society to be a person of positivity and of positive change. Because genuinely, that hat trick, I would imagine, were he not to be the kind of person who has done this incredible work over the course of the last, last seven or eight months, would not be greeted with the same kind of coverage. There is a sense that once a player moves into the mainstream, what they do is perceived differently. Would you not say that it's what, what he does on the pitch? If you look at some of the previous examples of players who've reached that, that sort of mainstream fame, and Rashford's not quite at, say, the Beckham level yet, but with, with Beckham, who is the best example of this transition from, from footballer into person of note slash celebrity, um, with Beckham, the, the effect that it had was that for quite a long time after he stopped being as good as he was, there was still a perception that David Beckham was England's best player because he was the most famous player. So if anything, I think it'll have this weird double impact where it kind of, it, it means that Rashford's fame endures even if his career dips, but also it will, it will seem to, to sort of accentuate anything that he does on the pitch because ultimately he, as part of that transition, you become less footballer, you become footballer plus something else rather than just a footballer so he's now no longer judged just by what he does on the pitch and he'll he will effectively be a someone that people have heard of someone my mum has heard of um and because he's made that leap the assumption will be well he must be England's best player so you'll get to you'll get to major tournaments and when fans come to football during major tournaments the question will be well what about Rashford what about Rashford and the fact that say I don't know Jaden Sancho is playing better than him won't be particularly relevant because Jaden Sancho hasn't launched a massive campaign to get loads of children free food. So he won't have that level of fame, which means he won't have that level of, of advocacy on his behalf. Yeah, there, there's been a thing about whether or not there'd be some kind of smear campaign from those on the right who are mysteriously unhappy with what Marcus Rashford is doing and that that might apply some pressure to him. Whereas actually, as Rory's just alluded to, the worst thing that will happen for Marcus Rashford is that there'll be just unreasonable expectations when it comes to playing for his country in a major tournament, that that could be the most overwhelming pressure that, that falls on his shoulders as a consequence. But the thing that's making what he's doing so remarkable and I think has really resonated with people is partly how young he is. He's still at an age at 23 where people would expect to be tutting about the behaviour of a footballer rather than having admiration for what they're doing. But that also he is continuing to deliver on the pitch so people are seeing him in the headlines on both the front and back pages continuously. He seems to be able to balance these two incredibly stressful responsibilities that he has. One, playing for Manchester United and over-delivering in a team that is probably still playing below the level that it should be collectively. And then also finding time off the pitch to start a movement really that's gathered so much momentum and, and so much admiration that it seems extraordinary that a person of his age and with his responsibilities is capable of doing both. I think he didn't he speak to um to the Prime Minister after coming off the pitch um playing having played against Everton. So he's he's literally able to do it on the same day. This is exactly the same time where Chinch would be piling into a chicken chow main. So that you know that is particularly <laughs> impressive from from Rashford's point of view. But I think the reason that I mentioned that Leipzig hat trick is because I and I, I said probably to diminish it it just so happened but the fact is is that now is every Manchester United story for that mainstream going to have to be contextualized via Rashford's contribution so if he doesn't do that is it therefore less of a story to those same, same people who are interested with what and everything 
that, that Rashford provides if he's not playing well, if he doesn't start, if, he, if he's not in the England team in the World Cup no, or we, Euros, for example? The, the, the World Cup and the Euros are different because that's when... That, they're the moments, the World Cup in particular, when the mainstream pays attention to football in a way that it doesn't during the, the sort of run-of-the-mill quotidian course of the season. But they're going to wonder if, if nothing happens between now and then, if you, if you see what I mean. Is well, no, there not going to be... What, I've heard Rashford's name. Why isn't he playing for England? Isn't he the greatest thing ever? Well, no, there's a lot of people won't know that the people that we're talking about won't know that England are playing. I barely know when England are playing, so I don't think you can expect my mum to know when England are playing. But I think, no, I, th- I think the, the transition that he makes is that what you do on the pitch becomes irrelevant. That's like the overriding lesson of Beckham, that, that it didn't really matter how Beckham was playing or whether he was scoring goals. If, if, if he scored goals, it was a big story. If he got sent off, it was a big story. But if he was just kind of busy being all, you know, well, I mean, he was a world-class player, David Beckham. But, you know, if he was just sort of being David Beckham in the Manchester United team and he wasn't, you know, that it was like November and, and he wasn't throwing a hat-trick, it didn't make any difference. He still, by the time it came to a World Cup, was enormously famous. I think where there, where there is a risk of backlash for Rashford, and I slightly disagree with Steve, is that I think if he has a dip in form, there will be football fans who will resent the fact that he has spent so much time doing something else because football fans have this there's this sort of weird duality where football fans seem to think that players should have to spend literally all of their time like practicing free kicks and aren't allowed to go and do something else and as soon as there's one of the big risks i guess for, for players sticking their head above above what the legendary duncan jenkins used to call the parrot pit um <laughs> is um is that you open yourself up to that to that strain of criticism where if you if your form does dip you're accused of, well, you're not paying enough attention. You're too busy feeding starving children. Why don't you practice your free kicks? And so there'll be, I think there might be a backlash if Rashford does have a dip in form. And look, he's 23. He will have a dip in form at some point. If his activism continues, where football fans resent the fact that he's doing other stuff. And you see on the social media already, there's lots of, lots of in inverted commas, Man United fans who are kind of will respond to Rashford, you know, if they lose a game, saying maybe spend less time doing doing the politics and more time on the training ground. And I think that's the, that's the risk for him. And that's an attitude that's actually kind of indulged by, by ex-players and pundits. Because when, I remember when Jesse Lingard launched his clothing range, you had like Paul Ince and Brian Robson and Roy Keane coming out saying that his performances were suffering because he was too busy designing T-shirts or whatever. Or Paul Pogba um, getting a new haircut. Yeah, and yeah, it's the same, same, same thing with Pogba getting a haircut. And again, it's, it's not a coincidence that... that the two players we've just quoted are black. That is not a coincidence at all. Um, there's this sort of fury from ex-players that they're not, they're not being serious enough. And you think, well, A, look, they train a few hours a day. They've got time. You know, Paul, Paul Podber's probably got time to nip to the barbers. But also, when you were their age, you, you finished training and went drinking. Who is the professional? Like, the 28-year-old lad who's training in the morning and then setting up a business in the afternoon? Or you as a 28-year-old, maybe this maybe isn't true of Keane, but it would certainly be true of Robson, who was going from training to the pub, which is the professional thing to do, because I'm pretty sure it's not that second one. And I think that we, we, we still haven't quite got used to this idea that, that football as a career is not like a, it's not, it's not like a clock-in, clock-off job. You don't have to do nine-to-five. That's not the best use of the footballer's time, despite Graham Wesley's protestations. But also, they're entitled to do stuff on an extracurricular basis, just as footballers have always done. And it's okay if it's not golf and drinking, that's fine. They're allowed to do whatever they like. And it's probably better that Jesse Lingard is, is 
being active and setting up a business or much as Rashford's doing, you know, changing the life of 1.4 million children, than it is that, you know, than it is that they're, they're getting 18 holes in every afternoon just because that's what they want to do. This is interesting because we're, we're, we're building on certain strands that will perhaps um, come in a little bit later about players like David Beckham, you've already mentioned Rory, but also going all the way back to, to George Best. So we'll come, come to them and, and the similarities between all the, all the people that we've mentioned so far. But first, uh, Chinch, who at the age of 28 was finishing training and... Going home to look after my children and being a wonderful father. That's basically what I was doing. But with, with Marcus Rashford, he's followed his heart. Let's hope that he has broken the mould for footballers, whether they be black, white, doesn't make any difference. Moving into the public sphere and producing change. The problem is that I'm looking at, I'm always looking at it from my point of view, but when he steps back into his, his day job, which is being a footballer, we can't, can we ever now separate the, political agitator from the footballer is Marcus Rashford now that's what he is so when he misses a penalty at the World Cup or the Euros and England are knocked out am I I will because that's my job to to criticize someone who I feel deserves or, or do we now the pundits the people covering the game which is his main job are we able to criticize him and if we do which we will which I certainly will will we get the backlash of you can't criticize him because of the work that he's done in the public sphere. I can just imagine Chinch on the world feed commentating on a painful quarterfinal defeat for England to Namibia, someone like that. Rashford misses a penalty. Quarterfinals, you're optimistic, aren't you? And, and Chinch says, you know, it's unfortunate that for Marcus Rashford, but, you know, if, if maybe he just stopped at a million hungry kids, then maybe he'd have had time no, to I'd practice the penalties. Say, no, I'd probably say, you know, there's, there's a reason, a footballing reason why, like every other footballer who makes a mistake, he's made a mistake. But we can't then take that and say, well, you're only saying that because you, you, you're saying he's, he's not concentrating on what... He, that's not the case at all. But that's the so point. So again, he's breaking the mould by doing what he's doing. But again, if he becomes one and the same, and you can't distance, you can't separate the two, it becomes very difficult to actually analyse him because you aren't worrying about what people think you're thinking when you're, when you're criticising as a footballer. That's exactly the point I'd like to make about whose property a mainstream or a footballer in the mainstream becomes yeah. because yeah. he becomes a, a greater property than he previously had been. So Marcus Rashford being criticised for something by Manchester United fans, it's that whole thing that we've always spoken about. If it's one of your family, you feel like you're permitted to be able to, to, to criticise them because they're one of yours, but don't let anybody else criticize them it's the same principle with the mainstream once the mainstream feels like that footballer is part of them and they have made a determination about whether that relationship is positive as it is overwhelmingly for Marcus Rashford or negative as it has been for some players including David Beckham who for whom it was both that there has been a determination made that suggests that you have to almost toe the party line with this mystical concept of the mainstream. And I think it's, Chinch, you're absolutely right. It's incredibly difficult to play both sides of that debate in a, in a political environment in which playing both sides doesn't necessarily have the value that it once did. There is really a, a power to that mainstream applying to a player a certain context that it's very difficult to go against without having a huge and probably unfair backlash. I think that's something that Marcus Rashford in the background has done incredibly well, is that he has continued to do the other regular things that come with being a Premier League footballer. He's still carrying out footballer media responsibilities after training. He's still speaking to United's in-house 
media operation, for example. He did a round of interviews a couple of weeks ago for the Premier League's global partners. He's still doing the things that he would be expected to do that most fans wouldn't necessarily be aware of. But he's not just now Manchester United footballer and activist and only speaking to BBC Breakfast's Sally Nugent on a regular basis. There are still the kind of things that that a lot of people don't... And I've been at at training grounds quite a bit recently and you'd be surprised how many footballers are still around the place at two or three o'clock in the afternoon doing the other things that come with being a high So he's, high so he's keeping his football really. connection, Steve. That's what yeah, he's actively I, I, doing. I think that, that bit of life, he, he's still got ticking over so that he, he remains a footballer first and foremost. And that thing that we've been talking about, about whether, look, you know, don't let Live Aid 2022 get in the way of you winning the World Cup for England. I, I don't see that, that being something that's going to happen because I, I think he is a footballer who is using that fame and that profile to be, to be an activist, not trying to have a foot in both camps. I, As I if love there's the going idea. to be a world drop in 2022. I was going to say, <laughs> I like the, the, the idea that Live Aid, used by Stephen and Stephen only in, in the pejorative, Live Aid. I mean, Live Aid. <laughs> but there, there, there is a sense... It'll be, it'll be a stream. It'll be a streaming service. <laughs> That's true. Make a donation to log into the Zoom. There is, there is um, an opportunity now perhaps to, to, to move it on to David Beckham because of exactly what you just said, Stephen, about that balance and, and, and the balance which Sir Alex Ferguson felt was too weighted in, in favour of the non-footballing life that David Beckham had, had and that was one of the reasons why uh, they split asunder and his Manchester United career ended. But there is a sense that, that, that David Beckham, because of what happened in 1998 in the World Cup and scorn was poured upon a player who'd become uh, a mainstream entity because of what he did against Wimbledon in the opening day of the season in 1996. There is, there is a sense with David Beckham that he's a good example of this because he went from being positive to negative back to positive again. And he is now a completely different idea in our minds than what he mm. was uh, back when he was playing, particularly in the first mm, six or seven years of, of his career. So let's, let's spend some time. And there's an email that we've got in from, from Tim Stillman on, on David Beckham uh, to bring into this conversation as well, because I think it's a fascinating one. Can I, can I tell you an intensely personal story by way of a parable? Please do, although make sure that you, that you moralise at the end. I, oh, I will be, don't worry. So when, when I was very, very little, my half-sister lived with us. She's called Mary. Uh, she's my dad's daughter by his first marriage. And Mary, this would be mid-80s. And my, parent, my parents were relatively old, so they weren't kind of, they hadn't been like hippies in the 60s. They, they were the, my parents were the people who lived through the 60s and weren't there and would both tell you that, that the stuff about the 60s is massively overblown. Um, because most people were just at work in the 60s. That's what most people in the 60s were doing. They were going to work. Um, anyway, Mary lived with us, and she was a teenager. And my mum found it really, really hard to cope with Mary because she was a teenager, because my mum had never really encountered a teenager before. And we grew up, all three of us grew up with this kind of, this kind of story in our head that we'd been told by, by, by my mum and dad. And this isn't me having a pop at my parents. Um, the, that like Mary had been really difficult and it had been impossible to deal with her and she'd been really troubled and, and all this stuff. And it turned out that mainly what my mum meant was that Mary used to drink quite a lot of coffee and not bring the cups down. And my mum found that kind of intolerable. That, that someone would do that. And she couldn't believe the scale of the rebellion that was being carried out under her own roof. And anyway, then obviously me, my, my sister and my brother all become teenagers. 
and we were far worse than that. We were, we were, especially Rob, little shit. Um, and uh, the, how many coffee cups did he leave upstairs? My, my sister was really stroppy. My brother was completely monotone until he was about sixteen. Like he was effectively mute; just wouldn't talk to my parents. Like really, really disobedient. Um, hilarious. We always got on all right, but um, I was obviously a model son. Oh yeah. Um, and my mum said to me that she it, it, going through that with us made made her realise that um, that she probably called it wrong on Mary. That Mary wasn't. She wasn't a particularly sort of difficult teenager. She was just a normal teenager. And she just, she was the first teenager that she'd ever encountered. So she found it really hard to, um, to deal with. And I think it's basically the same with David Beckham. That he was the first. There we go. There you go. <laughs> we got there in the end. There's something about Mary and David Beckham. The admittedly tortured parallel, parallel with David Beckham is that I think that Fergie found it really hard to deal with Beckham's celebrity fame. And he, he felt that he was being distracted from football because of the level of fame he'd achieved. And I think if you look at Beckham's performances in the round over his career, that's probably not true at all. That Beckham's level never really dropped. He had dips like any normal player, but he was actually remarkably consistent given that he was having to deal with all the other stuff in his life. And I wonder whether football as a whole is now at the stage that my mum was when my brother, who was my little brother, was a teenager. Football knows what to expect of its sort of celebrity players, the players who have a mainstream fame beyond just being famous footballers. It knows how to handle them a lot better. And it realises that what might in Beckham's era have been perceived as a, as a problem or some sort of complication is now just understood as, well, they, they, they can manage it really well. You know, even Rashford, and this isn't to take anything away from him, Rashford has a team working with him on this. It's not, you know, Marcus Rashford is not alone it's not a one-man crusade nor should it be there is a point at which I think the clubs realize and the managers realize that the players can do all of these things and to allude to what I said before like they're probably they'd probably be happier with Jesse Lingard setting up a business and they would be thinking Jesse Lingard was going out every night or you know spending his I don't know spending his afternoons in to an extent I guess even at the golf club at least it shows you know he's, he's got something else in his life there's a he's a rounded person um not that they object to people playing golf although they should do uh, and I wonder whoa, whoa, whether... Whoa, whoa, right, wait, 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 wait. Okay, look. Rugby Union and Formula One are fair game, but golf. No, you wait. I've got, I've, got, I've got a lot of hatred for quite a lot of sports, Steve. I don't mind golf when it's people I know and like playing it, but as, as a general principle, I object completely. So you're okay. So can I, you can, and, I can play golf. You and Hugh can play golf and, and my, my mate... Well, Herbie. I don't know. That's, that's a statement that doesn't necessarily actually make and that's very about it. But no, yeah. so I, basically, <laughs> this has taken far too long. I wonder if... It's not a problem for football anymore if players reach that Beckham level of fame because Beckham has blazed the trail and football now understands that players can handle it. And also that reflects rather well on Manchester United that they've got one of their players who is not only representing them two or three times a week, but also clearly on a national stage doing positive things. Chinch? Um, yeah, I just wonder, do we have to differentiate between Beckham and Rashford in terms of I always felt Beckham was maybe desiring and it was um, to try and get mainstream not acceptance, but to, to come to kind of for, for people to realise who he was, where Marcus Rashford, I presume, has not done this to be accepted or noticed in the mainstream. He's done it clearly because he feels it right. He just happens to be a footballer who, who has moved this forward. Was Beckham, did he not, did he not drive again? The was he looking for that mainstream appeal? I think he was probably looking for fame in a way that Rashford isn't. Yeah. I, mean, I suppose you can... I know it doesn't change. It's still coming to the attention of the mainstream. That, oh, yeah. That's what we're saying here. But actually desiring it and it happening, or maybe too... Will the public 
maybe see Marcus Rashford differently to, to David Beckham? Will they see Rashford as better, in inverted commas, because of the reasons that they know about him now? Rashford, Rashford isn't, isn't a celebrity. Beckham became a celebrity more than a footballer. Yeah. in people's general perception. Rashford isn't a celebrity in that sense. At some point, he might become like an activist or a political figure more than a footballer. But I don't think he... His, his, the nature of his fame is different to the nature of Beckham's, and that's probably because Beckham chose to use it... Beckham sought it of a certain type that was actually very much of its era. And Rashford's, I suppose, is, is very much of its era as well. You know, Rashford, this, this is how you... Obtain. If you look at like someone like LeBron, you need to have that political engagement to, to reach that level of fame it's not it's no longer kind of it's a bit gauche to do it through but, what Beckham did now. but Beckham Beckham's fame didn't affect not saying that it should come into the attention of the major it didn't affect anything it didn't produce anything in terms of of people's behavior or how people thought about society did it obviously Marcus Rashford is clearly doing that did, so it is very different how they're did, viewed did did Beckham necessarily covet fame or did fame come the way of David Beckham as a consequence of, of circumstances and it ended up being a wave that that he rode. It, was it was was, it, once, was it unavoidable? Once was, basically, once he was married to a Spice Girl, did did fame outside of football not effectively just go hand in hand for him? Yeah. Uh, it, it's a, a bigger force than yeah. It's you, you, that level of fame you can't you can't really control it. It's bigger than you, isn't it? Like Beckham well, couldn't. So have, what happened with 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 Jamie and Louise Redknapp? Then is that a completely different thing? Well, I think Redknapp was they a bit not, less... Maybe court, did they not court fame, maybe as much? Or well, that was it like just, an, Al, that was an Aldi version of it. it. Was. I know it, it was, was, but it's like still, again, brand. a very famous England footballer with a, with a current pop star. No, but, not again, as, but somebody not who was as, injured a lot and not yeah. making those moments yeah, happen. Yeah, 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 so yeah. Jamie Redknapp did not score against uh, Neil Sullivan against Wimbledon on the first day of the 1996 yes, season yes. from the halfway line. That was the moment that propelled David Beckham into the mainstream via what he did on the pitch. So as much as I can understand you chinching that saying that he might Do you have... feel you feel that goal in terms of the mainstream view of David Beckham, even though they might not be interested in sport, rather than his relationship with the Spice Girl? Because, well, that's what happened first, yes. Mm. Okay, well, I, I just, again, I don't know how many people would, would know are, that's where it all started. In the major, that's where it started for David Beckham, that goal. There are lots of examples of what happened to David Beckham throughout his career that you could say that he was attempting to maximise or court. But the moment mm. that propelled him into the mainstream was scoring from the halfway line. Genuinely, that was the moment. Everything flowed yeah. from that moment. So it, it is a David Beckham story all, all about everything outside of football, absolutely. But the first thing that sent him into the mainstream in a positive sense clearly was him scoring from the halfway line but then obviously it can flip we'll come on to talking to this about this if you like but it flipped to the massive extreme because he was already in the mainstream so what happened uh, against Argentina in the World Cup the reaction to that was partly because of the journey that had been set about because of him scoring against Wimbledon yeah look that that goal he wasn't in the the tiny outdated Selhurst Park dressing rooms after that game thinking now is the time to page that Spice Girl and get the, that PR guy that I've heard about that Simon Fuller fella this is my moment I can't believe for one minute that he was like right now this is, I'm chasing my fame on the back of that goal no, I don't think it particularly it at that point Steve but I think again if you're saying that's that's the starting point and I accept that but again later on when you realize that snowball is starting to to, to gather momentum and grow can you again fuel that I'm not saying because what we do is talk about footballers moving into the mainstream, how they get there and whether they actively look for that to happen and the reasons maybe they look for that to happen is the interesting thing for me. And can I, can I just also ask Chinch, having seen him up close in terms of on the field, on the training ground. Very good looking. I, 
You can never David, get past me, though. Was David Beckham actually a better footballer than he got credit for? Did, um, did the fact that he was famous off the football pitch actually distract from his ability as a, as a footballer? He, what, he, he, of his type, he was a... Again, I played directly against him. And if you're saying, is he the player that you would not want to play against every week? I'd say, no, I don't mind. I'd rather not play against Andre Kachelskis or Trevor Stephen or Chris Waddle. Because they would give me more problems than that. Now, Beckham had an incredible ability to manipulate a football. And he practiced and practiced. He honed his art, his fitness levels. He did everything he possibly could to be the very best that he was. And he was extraordinary. But he, in my mind, I, I played against, directly played against people and people in other positions that had more natural ability. But I would always say his work ethic and his willingness to just push himself as far as he possibly could was incredible and that that to me was the, the huge part of his footballing success who, who was better at free kicks me or david beckham mm. or matt letizier uh well i've told the story where we had that england training session haven't i where matt letizier myself david beckham and glenn hoddle i was just pinging him into the top corner for fun and they were really struggling to get it up and over the wall to beat floppy haired ian walker but i didn't seem to have too much of a i actually used the wall as uh there's an advantage for me. Yeah. The one thing I would but say... I'm not, about, I'm not saying it's me, but I think it was probably me. The one, the one thing I would say about Beckham, other than that he stole the level of fame that Chinch very clearly deserved... Damn him! The other, <laughs> yeah, I think the, the difference with, with him and, and the Redknapps is, is partly his career. That Redknapp was an extremely famous footballer, but he, he didn't have all of those big moments in... in, in and he wore that terrible time. suit at that cup final, and that really did for well, him. No, but Redknapp never won anything, I don't think. He might have won a League Cup of some sort, but he, he, he didn't, certainly didn't win a Champions League, didn't play in the World Cup, didn't, you know... He didn't, he didn't, um, he didn't win as much as Beckham. He wasn't of that level. This sounds really stupid, but Eternal weren't the Spice Girls. Eternal were... Whoa, 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 you're opening <laughs> up a can of worms there, my friend. Eternal were a, were a top class, top-notch pop act, but they weren't... <laughs> culture shifters in the way that the Spice Girls were. But the crucial thing with Beckham is that his fame was completely a product of its time. So if you think about, that was the, like the late 90s was, was loaded, it was Nuts Magazine, it was, uh, what was the other one? FHM. FHM yeah. It was the kind of Lad Mag era, it was Britpop, which he was, he wasn't obviously part of, but he, it was a very similar sort of fame. It was the height of like the three AM girls in the mirror, and that proper celebrity culture really, really becoming mainstream. And Beckham, it, I don't know whether he sought it. He certainly didn't actively seek to run from it, but it, it was a sort of all-encompassing cultural moment that he was part of, and that's what projected him to this to the level of fame that he had, which I suspect is greater than than any other footballer of that, apart from like Pele and Maradona. You know, the, the greatest players in the world have that level of fame, but Beckham. Beckham lifted himself to a, to a level of fame that very few players have, partly because he, he, he just happened to happen as, as the culture shifted in a very specific way. It's actually the kind of Beckham phenomenon. I don't know whether there's ever been a book written on Beckham's kind of cultural impact and, and what, what it, like the story of the late 90s and early 2000s through like the lens of David Beckham, but it would genuinely be a really good book. Can I just say, if it's going to be an audio book, don't let him read it. <laughs> <laughs> which, which brings us beautifully to this email from... Tim Stillman, who I, I mentioned earlier. Incidentally, there is a, there is a good uh, bio, bi recent biography by a guy called Wayne Barton, who Steve knows, uh, has written a lot of books about Manchester United, um, about David Beckham. And it, it basically posits that he suffered because of his fame, because there was an assumption that his fame translated to him being the best footballer, best yeah. footballer in the world. And actually, even though he wasn't the best footballer in the world, and so him not reaching those expectations made people think that he wasn't very good at all, he 
was actually incredibly good at what he did and therefore it's taken quite a while for everybody to understand actually what his place is and what his talents uh, what his talents were that is a sound theory um but tim says this uh, you hit upon something really interesting in your last episode with athletes having a better chance of crossover success based on class and race i read a really interesting academic study last year on david beckham in the mid to late 1990s he was crossover famous but is a figure of ridicule because of the way that he spoke and undoubtedly due to some jealousy over his success and marriage to a pop star beckham's roots were working class east london so he was satirized as stupid and his elocution was widely mocked including in 2020 by Andy Hinchcliffe. This is in stark contrast to what we now see with Beckham, who is considered a national treasure. The study that I read suggested that he and his people worked on his image and his elocution. He lost a bit of his Leighton Stone accent and aligned himself with highbrow, aspirational fashion brands. He also developed a more cosmopolitan image in his football career. The study suggested it was no coincidence that he played in Madrid, Paris, Milan, and LA, all aspirational high culture cities. Now when people see Beckham, they don't see a lad from Leighton Stone with a slight Cockney accent. He is now seen not just as financially wealthy, but culturally wealthy too. So what Tim is saying is that there is an element, yes, you try and control the narrative as much as you can, but also that there is this sense when footballers move into the mainstream, they are often judged because of their class and how that class might affect little customer facing things like the way that he speaks. The thing about Beckham and class that's interesting is that I think Beckham was always or he would be portrayed as the acceptable type of working class in a way that Wayne Rooney, say, or Stephen Gerrard weren't. So Rooney was a stoused kid from a council estate. And that, in the eyes of the mainstream, has a negative class connotation. It is, and I'm not saying I approve of this, obviously, or that I agree with it, but it is thieving, it is work shy, it's dull cheat. It's, there's lots and lots of negative connotations about being northern and working class. Rooney was always held back by the negative connotations and the fact that with, without wishing to be like mean to Wayne Rooney, the fact that he's not exactly kind of an oil painting of beauty kind of played into that. It was, he was the kind of ruffian kid. Beckham was southern, he was good looking and he was aspirational working class and that to the mainstream, the, the sort of the middle class mainstream is the acceptable working class. It's the Tory middle class of you're from the south, you're from Essex, the kind of London hinterlands, bit of, bit of edge about you, bit of kind of bit of barrow boy enthusiasm, whatever, bit of bit of nails, bit of moxie, uh, but you want to better yourself. And that is a much easier package for, and again, not to harp on about it, but like to the late 90s tabloids, which were still, you know, still riven with that. Thatcherite kind of McKenzie ideology, that's a much more acceptable package than Rooney being a Stouse working class kid. And I think Beckham, class could have held Beckham back, but it didn't because he was the right type of working class. And that, so the, the, the stigma to the, attached to the working class in the eyes of the mainstream still exists. It just didn't apply to Beckham because he was seen as being the right type of working class. If he'd been Northern, it would have been totally different. And that's exactly what we were saying about the issue of race as well, about the acceptable face of a black athlete, as Shane was saying in his email. It's, it's exactly the same principles that, that you can apply. Can I ask you about players like George Best and Paul Gascoigne? The old-fashioned type if you like of mainstream darling because of their character their maverick nature and to a slightly tragic tragic extent their their reliance on alcohol george best was treated like a rock star wasn't he or a, a film star he was given that sort of leeway that kind of leverage so he probably wasn't judged 
in the same way as a lot of the footballers we've talked about so far would be in terms of going off the rails because of that word you used, Hugh, the minute that Maverick comes into the equation. And from a Paul Gascoigne point of view, there was that constant thing about his, because of the talent he had at his disposal, the general public perception was that, that there was a desire to see him fulfill his potential. And that was the overriding emotion that most people had about Paul Gascoigne. So when we look at Marcus Rashford stepping forward with what he's trying to do, you know, feeding hungry kids, if Paul Gascoigne, the maverick Paul Gascoigne, the person he was, if he'd have done that, would he have just been the mainstream, would have just laughed him out of town, basically? Well, he was a comedic figure, wasn't he? Initially, yeah. he was a comedic He wouldn't figure. take him seriously then. I mean, he's got a friend called Five Belly, so he's clearly more interested in filling, filling his belly than he is necessarily those who are underprivileged uh, and younger. But there is a sense, is there not? that somebody who has a comedic element, yes, I appreciate the kind of the rock star nature of what you're saying, Steve, about George Best. That, that's a different ballpark, if you like. But Paul Gascoigne was comedic and therefore he's very much closer to tragedy than perhaps any of the, others, the other examples that we've thought of. Every so often I, I have these moments where I'm a bit like, I, I don't have anything to write about and nothing, nothing's really catching my, my imagination. And invariably in those moments, you three clowns appear and immediately give me an idea. And it's the cultural moment. That's what it is. Best Gascoigne, Beckham, and Rashford. What what joins all four of them is that they are they they, are, they break into the mainstream because they reflect and to some extent shape the cultural moment in which they exist. So, so Steve is totally right that Best was treated as a rock star because it was the same era as the Beatles and the Stones and the Swinging Sixties. And your parents were working. And, and my not, parents were at work, it. missing out on all of it because my dad liked Skiffle and the um. <laughs> Donegan. He's a Bloody loves Skiffle. <laughs> and there's no, there's no room in people's lives for both Skiffle and the Swinging Sixty. Skiffle was, Skiffle was not invited to Woodstock. The, um, <laughs> but Best sort of captured that zeitgeist, didn't he? He had the trendy shot with Mike Summerby, and he, you know, he he liked the he liked partying as as, as we would well as Paris Hilton would call it now. As you know, he liked drinking. And it was that kind of same sort of loushness and looseness and that kind of relaxation that propelled Best to the mainstream. He looked like a rock star because he was good looking, but he was, he behaved like one too in, in the era of the Beatles. And that's what people wanted. He was the footballing incarnation of the 60s. Gascoigne was the early harbinger, I guess, of lad culture. It was the point at which football went from being, as we said last week, the slum sports played in slum, in slum stadiums and watched by slum people into being kind of much more accepted, much more kind of Talk, you know, talked about in the office, in the office, and a bit of banter and all that stuff. And Gazza was the, was effectively the bridge that made that possible because he was a he was like you say, like a comic but slightly tragic figure that the whole na nation could kind of gather around. And you think about the moment that propelled him into national fame. It's the it's the semi in nineteen ninety when he cries, and it's an emotion that everyone can kind of identify with. But he's got the you know he's got the fake boobs on, and he's singing with he's singing fog on a tine, and he's got Jimmy Five Bellies, and he likes drinking, and isn't he a great lad? And lad culture and football lads, and you know, and, and that then becomes kind of the defining cultural moment for Britain Britain in the nineties, which leads into the kind of Beckham tabloid celebrity culture that we that we had in the late nineties and going into the two thousands, which then become you know, which gives rise to like TMZ and the Daily Mail sidebar of shame, which is just pictures of loads of people you've never heard of. And you're like, why are these people famous? Why do I care what they're wearing? But it's that kind of celeb proper celebrity culture. With Rashford, it's totally different because the, the language of fame now 
is much more to do with using your power and your platform to do good. So what Rashford has on purpose or accidentally, it's hard to tell, tapped into is that same strain of a cultural moment where athletes are expected to use their voice much more. And if they don't, the question starts to arise, well, where do you stand on this? See, I think it's interesting they're still taking the knee before Premier League games. You know, if, you know the Black Lives Matter movement hasn't finished, but the, the initial moment has maybe, has, is, was in like April and May after the killing of George Floyd. So, but the, the players are still doing it because they know there is an, an expectation on, on athletes to use their position and their prominence to, to get a message across. And that's what Rashford is doing. And it's actually really interesting seeing how Rashford is tapping into, the, into a cultural moment just as best Gastron and Beckham did, but it's completely different. So well done, you've written my newsletter for next week. Yeah, can we just tighten the preamble? Basically, the preamble is an hour long and we finally got to the, to the nub of the it's point. A, it's a it's workshopping a, process, Steve. <laughs> but the Rashford, that, that is a, such a great thought on Rashford because we are living in a time where people are more socially conscious than they've ever been before. Because they have and to be, yeah. Because they have to be, but Marcus Rashford is suddenly a, a beacon of hope for, for, for people who, who want to be inspired with that kind of leadership. Also, I mean, the, the four people you've talked about presumably didn't do it consciously. It was just the right person at the right time for yeah. whatever was happening. Whether they did it consciously or not is quite difficult to, to say. I guess not. I don't think Whether George it, Best was conscious in the way that you, no. you would probably apply to those in, in future generations from his and point Paul of Gascoigne view. Paul was generally unconscious most of the time. <laughs> I mean, Gazza to an extent played up to it, didn't he? But whether that's because Gazza didn't have the, the, the right people around him, Beckham certainly indulged it, whether he was seeking it or not. I think it's diff- what's really difficult to tell is whether, is it the right person at the right time or are they so shaped by the era in which they live that that is who they become? But, but yes, you're absolutely right. nurture. Yeah. Because George Best is, is a product, surely, of the, the environment in which he played. He, he wasn't a rock star because inherently he was a rock star. He was a rock star because was of the, the 60s, era yeah. in which he was, yeah. he was famous. Can you imagine if George Best had lived with your mum and dad, Rory, how many coffee cups <laughs> and other things he would have left up in his oh room? My God. My, I tell you, there is a, there they, is, they had there it lightly with Mary. They really there did. Are, there are many reasons George Best never lived with my parents, but that's one of them. <laughs> Rashford is probably the one who has decided this yeah. is what I am going to do, but what he couldn't prepare for and couldn't anticipate is how much that has resonated with people. And just to f- go back to George Best, the other thing about Best and the leeway that he was perhaps given by people at that time was, of course, that, that football and general society were, were much more closely in sync in the 60s than, than they have been since the explosion of, of the Premier League and, and football drifting away from the working classes. Well, I hope uh, I was very interested in this subject before we even spoke about it. Now I'm even more interested uh, in this subject. I'm particularly interested as well. We kind of had it touched upon by a couple of correspondents from the US. But what's what's it like there? Does this resonate with you and 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 perhaps those those in Australia as well that listen to Set Piece Menu? Let, let us know about your experiences and whether this is a uniquely British thing or whether it translates across either the Atlantic Ocean to the west or indeed loads of countries down to the southeast so let us know setpiecemenu at gmail.com it's time for never mind jack and ori what a soccer story this is an andy hinchcliffe tells the tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behavior and libel worthy details removed i i for 51 years old i think i'm i'm pretty different to other men of my age i don't feel i'm setting my ways i am all for new experiences and i've been broadcasting to a very very high level uh for about a decade hang on a minute yeah. For, five, for five years longer than that decade, you were broadcasting with me. Do I get by that inference that 
those five years were not of a very high standard. If you hear what I said, I've been broadcasting brilliantly for a decade. <laughs> I learned my trade with you and then moved on massively. Once I ditched you, you ditched me. Uh, and something happened. It's first time occurrence. Very, very strange. Now, I, I don't know whether, uh, have I, you've seen, because you've worked with me, Steve, and Hugh, you would have seen, the way I keep my notes, I use little sticky, sticky tabs, sticky, sticky labels to write all the players' names down so I can lay out formations and I can make substitutions. just the way that I do it. It's and like people, a shambolic middle manager with his books falling out of his briefcase. And Listen, yeah. my dress sense is shambolic, Post, but my note-keeping is exemplary. And anyway, anyway, so I'm, doing, I'm not going to mention which club it was, which game it was, which coach it was, but I, I've, I've chatted to this guy a number of times about football and all this type of stuff, what's happening with the clubs that they're at. Um, so we're doing a game. So I've got my notes there. The teams, the teams are, are, are issued, but what they do, they bring out these, these team sheets, which we have to take a photograph of. And of course, with COVID and everything else, amber zones, red zones, we're kept very much to ourselves in the amber zone. All the coaches and, and other people can be in the red zone. We can't cross that barrier. So we were looking through the teams, taking pictures of the team sheets. And I'd actually, we've been talking about the team. So I put my notes down on like the, the kind of, it wasn't really a barrier. It's just kind of the, the gap between amber and red. And this kind of head coach guy must have been, again, watching the players walking around on the pitch. And he came over and he, he saw my notebook and I was off taking pictures and stuff. And I, I realized what he was doing, but obviously you don't want to close the distance with, with all that type of thing. Uh, and what he did, he actually took my notes and rearranged all my sticky notes to lay out the formation of his team and how they were going to play. Now, normally, Steve, you and Hugh, you know how hard it is to get a team, let alone a formation, out of anybody. So for this guy to come over, clearly he realised it was my notes because it was, it was clearly top class. Who, who else is it going to be? It's going to be me. And I had had him kind of set out as a, a three centre-halves and wing-backs, and he changed it all around and laid them out exactly how they did play. And that is the first time ever. Not, I don't really like someone handling my notes because you know, it was very personal to me. I don't like him fingering my, my, my tabs. But he, he did, and he did it to my benefit. And... It's extraordinary because that is never, no one's telling you the team is one thing, telling you how they're going to play is another thing, but then actually saying, you've got it wrong there, I'm going to lay it out for you in your notebook so you can take it onto the gantry. And I was trying to tell, and actually what happened back in the studio, they'd seen the personnel for this team and actually got the formation wrong. And I had to say to them, oh, no, no, they're not doing that. They're playing with the back four and this is how they're going to line up. And I, I kind of set the agenda, but actually it had come from somebody actually taking my notebook and rearranging it to my benefit, and that hasn't happened in 10 long years. Football clubs pay attention. This should be a service provided to all commentators and co-commentators an hour before games kick off. Because sometimes they not, you'd show a kind of a formation to a coach and you'd say, are you, I think you're maybe going to play that. Not tell them you're playing that way. Are you, are you? And they'll go, yeah, kind of. And it will be, but they just can't tell you, yes, you've got it right. Can they, Steve? They it's, play this daft game, don't they? So, oh, well, maybe you're maybe two or three players out there. And you just start to think, oh, my God. But this guy, clearly none of that. He, he obviously trusts me. He knows I'm a fantastic broadcaster after ditching Hugh and felt he needed to rearrange my notes. It is extraordinary that the, the coaches a reluctance to confirm things about teams and formations when you're so close to the game yeah. that the players are already out there warming up, the team sheet has been released, 
And it's almost as though they're unaware that when the game kicks off, people are going to see who's playing in what position. <laughs> so there really doesn't seem to be any point why you can't tell Sky's co-commentator that that is what's happening because it's about to be revealed to the whole world. And there is another way of reading that story, uh, Chinch, that it might have been a passive-aggressive move from a coach who thought that your preparation was so wildly inaccurate that he just couldn't stop himself from changing it. Poor work, Chinch. No, Poor there was work. only there was only two ways. I knew that, he knew that. Only two ways that this team with this personnel could line up. And I, I'd gone for what I thought it was. And But again, isn't that lovely? Again, the trust he must have in me to change that and not worry because everybody else seems to worry when they do that. Chinch, have you got anybody, any moles in the Iceland or Hungary camps who are going to be able to help us out ahead of our big game? Do you want me to uh, give uh, Gilfie Sigurdsson's dad a quick ring and see what's yeah, going yeah. on? Yeah? yeah? Yeah, just confirm. Just confirm. Is he going to play as a 10? Or I'll give, I'll give Herman Sigmundsson a little ring just to see what's happening. Why are you touching your nose? Because I'm in the know. Uh. keep your correspondence coming to setpeacemenu at gmail.com please subscribe share rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule thank you to rory andy and Stephen, and to you all for listening we'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed ah and i'm off now to <laughs> it through the eye of a needle keep that in if you can <laughs> how long a beef have you got you oh, okay, you see what i had to i had to make a run for it I've taken these four tiny, tiny tablets of the last day. It's not even the main, the main body of the uh, stuff I've got. Out. And it's already working its magic on that bombshell. Yeah, thanks, Chinch. Yeah, d- don't I mean, be dropping anything else, will you? Yeah, <laughs> for the first don't, have time... peanut, don't have any peanut butter this afternoon. For the first time ever, we're fading out as Hugh gives the email address. <laughs> <laughs> well, we might be fading out as I drop my microphone. And now it's buzzing. Look at that. I've broken everything. It's all gone Everything let's just broken. let's just call it quits. This hasn't this this has been a bad outro. <laughs> call it squits. Oh. Oh.